Our Father, as we come to your word today, we pray that we would understand by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would understand and that we would have the conviction to not just understand, not just keep it in our minds, but to let it sink deeply into our hearts. Lord, may we learn to value the things that you value, to love the things that you love, and to hate the things that you hate, in order that we may grow in the likeness of Christ, in order that he may be glorified in our lives. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Did you guys have a crazy week? Was this like the craziest week in American history or what? I mean, this week was, was pretty crazy. I, I'm going to go back a couple weeks, though. I'm going to start us off a couple weeks ago when the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. And uh, it was the first time in over 100 years. That's something that, you know, even if you're not a baseball fan, and, and I'm not really, uh, you can kind of like smile about. It, it can at least bring a smile to your face, right? You don't have to protest that or anything like that. I am not, like I said, I'm not a baseball fan. I haven't watched baseball in 20 years uh, before the World Series, but I did watch games five, six, and seven. Those are the, the first games I've watched since the mid 90s. I had stopped watching in the middle of the 1990s. There was a player strike. And I thought, wow, you know, these, these players are just kind of being unreasonable. I'm not sure if I want to support this. And when the season resumed, I remember I was, I was watching a game. And uh, there, there, was one, uh, there was one pitch that, uh, that was so obviously a ball that the umpire called a strike. And I started thinking about it, and I thought, you know, this one pitcher has a much bigger strike zone than the other pitcher. And so between the two things, between feeling like, uh, you know, the, the players are being unreasonable, and wow, this, this umpire is really being uh, very partial, um, I decided to kind of walk away from baseball until, you know, the, the Cubs were in the World Series. And then it's like, oh, okay, this is history. You, you have to watch this. The fact is, I really didn't like the way that the umpire, the way that, that baseball worked, how the umpire had to judge things. And that's just baseball. That's just baseball. That's the way it's always worked, and that's the way it always will work. But the same is true of how our feelings are with God. The same, this is the same way it works with God. Our feelings, our opinions, our own judgments are ultimately irrelevant. You know, in baseball, when, when a manager disagrees, he comes out and he storms the, the field and, you know, gets in the umpire's face. Well, it works the same way with God. It doesn't matter what the, um, or what, what the, what the manager thinks. It's what the umpire judges, and it's the same with God. It's what matters is how he calls things. What God says, what he commands, is ultimately what our lives, what our feelings, what our positions on issues should be based on. And as I was turned off to baseball, I understand many people are going to be turned off by the idea that God is authoritative in all things and that he gets the final say in all things. But unlike an umpire in baseball, God doesn't call things subjectively. He is perfect. He is just in every judgment. And as his people, we must see his authority his views, his word as being of utmost importance. Today we're going to be continuing in our study of the book of Genesis, and our passage today is going to involve looking at how God feels about something that we are all confronted with in our culture, and that is the sanctity of human life. 
We'll be looking at Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 17. And what we're going to see in our passage today is that God sees all human life as sacred, and He instructs us to treat it as such. Just some context for this passage for the previous two chapters. We've covered the flood narrative, the history of how God flooded the earth, but He saved Noah and his family. And so we should remember that as we start chapter 9. This is the world. This, this is the, the post-flood world. It's the world after the flood that Noah and his family are stepping out of the ark into. So we start with the first three verses of chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 3 say this. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So we should begin by remembering that back in chapter 6, God made a very specific promise to Noah. Back in chapter 6, we saw God say this to Noah. He said, I will establish my covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you. Future tense, right? Future tense. So when was this going to happen? It's going to happen after the flood. We're going to find the establishment of God's covenant with Noah, which pertains to the sacredness of human life here in chapter 9. This passage is going to cover the conditions, the commands, and the stipulations of this covenant that God makes with Noah. Let me just say this up front. The covenant that we're going to look at today is still in place. It is still valid. It still applies to every human being on the face of the planet. All of humanity is still subject to this covenant. As we're going to see in verse 16, God himself says that this covenant is everlasting. Meaning, it never ends. Meaning, today, it's as valid as it was in Noah's day. And so with that much said, the promises The promises of God and the gifts of God are irrevocable. He has never failed on his end to keep the promises that are established in this covenant with Noah. And so for that reason, no person in the world, nobody in history, no person, no president, no king, no internet blogger has the authority to tamper with this covenant or to reject this covenant. Rejecting or dismissing this covenant is not an option for anybody. The commands and instructions contained in this covenant can't be added to, they can't be taken away from, they can't be changed, they can't be ignored. They must be taken very, very seriously. The world that Noah and his family, his sons and their wife and his and his son's wives the world that they exited the ark and stepped out into was very different geographically speaking uh, from the world prior to the flood we talked about that in our last uh, lesson our last sermon from genesis the flood had changed the landscape of the earth fairly drastically i'm sure but that's not the only change that noah and his family are going to have to deal with god is going to change some things as well 
He'll begin setting social boundaries and guidelines for living with within a community, within the context of community that continue to this day. So God begins by reiterating an old instruction. In fact, it's the oldest instruction that was given to man, which we saw all the way back in in chapter 1, which is to be fruitful and multiply. Noah and his wives and Noah's sons and their wives are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God wants there to be a lot of people a lot of people. God's design, His plans, and His purposes are to promote human flourishing. We're supposed to increase. We're supposed to survive. We're not going to go extinct as a race, as a species. Why are Noah and his family commanded to be fruitful and fill the earth? Because God wants a lot of lives, and He values all human life. All human life is sacred, and God's plans and purposes include uncountable scores of people. Throughout the Bible, from beginning to end, children are viewed as an enormous blessing from God, a wonderful, marvelous blessing from God. To have an abundance of children, you're being blessed in proportion with the number of kids that you have and grandkids that you have. Having a lot of kids and grandkids was one of the greatest gifts that a person could have throughout the Scriptures. To have many children and many grandchildren was to have the favor of God. Consider what we see in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 9, where the nation of Israel is told by God, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 11 to 14, God is promising blessing in exchange for Israel's obedience and, and, and curses in exchange for their disobedience. And he says this to Israel. He says, You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that He swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that He swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. So over and over in this passage, what we see is that God is promising to bless them. And a central part of that blessing is that He's going to multiply them. He's going to increase their population. He's the one who's going to do it. He's the one who's going to give them the children. We understand it's a natural thing, right? No, from God's perspective, it's not just a natural thing with Israel. And this isn't to say, by the way, that someone who can't bear children in our day and age is under God's curse. Let me be very clear about that. That is not uh, applicable to today. This is something that he said to Israel and Israel only. God knew that there would be some people, wherever you go, there are going to be some people who would be barren who were unable to produce offspring as a result of the fall in the Garden of Eden. The fact that everyone, that God is saying that everyone would be able to produce offspring would require what? It would require an act of God. 
It would require a miracle, and that's what he's promising here in exchange for their obedience. But remember, that this is written for us, but it's not written about us. These conditions are conditions that God promised exclusively to Israel in that context. Noah and his family are instructed to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. And this is the command that the covenant begins with. It's also the, the command that the covenant is going to end with. It's repeated in verse 7 for emphasis. God values all human life. He values all life, but He especially values human life. We have a special place in His eyes that animals do not. Look at the distinction that God makes as He continues setting the conditions for the covenant. Look at verses 2 and 3. God says that the animal kingdom is going to have a very significant change to it. The disposition of the animals toward humanity would be very different after the flood than it was before the flood or during the flood. Adam and Eve were instructed to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, right? And they were instructed to exercise dominion over the animals. But God is saying that neither Noah nor his sons nor anyone would have dominion over the animals any longer. Instead, after the flood, animals would have a fearful disposition toward man. They'd run away rather than flocking to. Now, we all realize that with a little bit of work and a lot of patience, you can train animals. You can train animals and, and make them fairly tame, but that is not their natural disposition. Their natural disposition is to be fearful of people. And why does God do this? Why does God give them this, this fearful disposition toward humanity? Look at verse 3. It's because now God has expanded the human diet to include meat from animals. In the beginning, God had given humanity only fruit and vegetation as food, as nourishment. But after the flood, meat would become part of the human diet. And that's apparently why God gave animals a fearful disposition toward humanity at the same time. Do you see how God, do you see what he's doing here? He, do you see how he's creating a distinction between humanity and animals? God values all life, but God especially values human life. He values animal life as well, but not at the same level that he values human life. And God is instructing Noah, his family, and all of their descendants, and that stretches down to us today, to share in his value system. Specifically in this case as it relates to the value of human life. In our day and age, we are surrounded by scores of evidence that humanity has failed to share in God's value system here. Humanity has failed to value human life as we should, as we were commanded to. In our day and age, life is perceived as being more or less disposable, which perhaps makes sense given that the culture is ingrained with this idea that we're just a cluster of cosmic bacteria that's advanced through evolution to the current state of humanity. 
That's what our kids are taught in school. That's what you and I are taught in the media, whether it's the news or whether it's TV shows or whatever. There's this underlying presupposition that we all evolved. And that's what the people in our culture believe, by and large. Taken to its logical conclusion, then, human life isn't sacred. If all we are is an advanced cluster of cosmic bacteria, then human life isn't sacred, logically. We're just an advanced life form. And if that's what you believe, then ultimately there's no difference, morally speaking, between swatting a fly that's bothering you or annoying you or buzzing around your head. There's no difference between that, swatting at that fly, and beating up somebody, beating somebody to a bloody pulp because they believe differently than you do. Why do you think it is that somebody who believes in evolution is more than, 10%, uh, more than 10 times more likely to commit suicide, depending on which study you look at? It's because if you believe that you're just an advanced life form, you're just an advanced cluster of evolved bacteria or cells, you aren't going to understand that your life is sacred. Your life is sacred. Our culture rejects the idea that human life is sacred and distinct from other life forms and other animals, but God values human life. God values human life. God says that human life is sacred, and ultimately it's only His judgment that matters. To defy the sanctity of human life is ultimately to defy God. In 240 years of American history, since the Revolutionary War. Approximately 1.2 million lives have been lost in military service. Almost half of those were in the Civil War, by the way. 1.2 million American casualties on the battlefield. That's a lot of lives. 1.2 million people is a lot of people. And yet... There are 1.6 million Americans who are murdered every year by abortion. This war alone, this war in the womb, has had over 60 million casualties to date. More than all the casualties in every major war around the world combined in world history. In other words, let me put it this way. You are safer on the battlefield in Afghanistan than you are in the womb in America. Why? Why? Because our culture rejects the idea that all human life is sacred. There was a news story from the year 1994 of a man who drove an ice cream truck for a living being shot point blank in the face in the suburbs of Philadelphia by a 16-year-old boy who had attempted to extort money from him. And when he refused to hand over any money, the boy shot him point blank in the face. And as this man, who was both a husband and a father of several children, as he lay bleeding out in the middle of the street, nobody called 911. Nobody came to his assistance. Nobody tried to help him, even though there were eyewitnesses there who told the police when the police finally arrived that instead of anybody coming to help, there were, this boy had some friends who were nearby. And as this ice cream truck driver lay bleeding out in the middle of the street, his friends circled around this ice cream man, bleeding to death, 
and composed a rap song about killing Mr. Softy. If you are shocked by that story, good. I, I was shocked. That, that, that is a revolting story. That is as awful as humanity gets. And if you're not disgusted, if you're not disturbed, I, I, I would be concerned for you. But you should be no less shocked or disgusted or disturbed by abortion because, because it's ultimately the same thing. It's a failure to see human life as sacred. There is no moral difference between taking the life of an ice cream truck driver or taking the life of a child in the womb. It is a failure. Maybe even we could say a refusal even to value human life as being sacred, all human life as being sacred. The only way that abortion doesn't disturb you is if you close your eyes and turn away from it, if you don't understand what's going on there. And yet we have scores of self-professing Christians in our country who align themselves with a political party that wants to not just fund abortion, but wants to increase the funding for abortion. Christians getting behind that type of movement. How, how is that even possible? Because our culture, and even many who claim to be Christian, our culture doesn't value human life the way that we should. They don't see human life the way God sees human life. And the insanity of it all becomes even more apparent when we realize that many of the same people who want to save the lives of animals want to promote the murder of children in the womb. More insane than that, many of the same people who want to bring an end to capital punishment want to increase abortion. This is insanity. This is absolute insanity, but we have to understand something. This isn't just a case of people not knowing the facts and people being ignorant of the facts. This is a deeply, deeply spiritual issue. This is a deeply spiritual issue. The sacredness, the sanctity of life is a deeply spiritual issue because God is the one who has judged that life is sacred. It's a deeply spiritual issue. Once you see that what we have going on in our world is the exact opposite of what God has commanded and ordained, maybe you understand that abortion is evil. Yes, we, we can agree with that, that, that abortion is evil, but it's not just evil. It is satanic. It is satanic. If you don't believe that it's satanic, I would challenge you to get on the internet and look at how satanic cults have partnered with Planned Parenthood. It's out there. The good news is, friends, the good news is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The good news is that there is grace in Christ Jesus that is more than enough. It is sufficient, more than sufficient, to cover the sin of murder, whether that's abortion or whether it's harboring anger in your heart toward your fellow man, which Jesus said is not any different from carrying out the physical act of murder, or murdering someone in cold blood on the street. God is eager to pour out His mercy. God is eager to be graceful 
to even the vilest of sinners who will repent and believe in Christ. But that repentance must start by seeing that God values all human life as sacred. And we're going to see why human life is sacred as we continue. Let's look at verses 4 to 7. God continues saying this. He says, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your lifeblood, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So here God sets the conditions for eating meat. That's how he starts this this section. Setting the conditions for eating meat. The meat must be free of the blood from the animal. And the reason that God gives is pretty straightforward. Life is in the blood. We all recognize that. If you don't have any blood, you don't have any life. If you don't have any blood, you are dead, no matter how healthy the rest of your body might be. Life is in the blood. Humanity is permitted to take the lives of animals for food, yes, but the bottom line is the life of the animal must still be respected. And this is something that would be found throughout the law of Moses as well. For example, we read in Leviticus chapter 7, verse 27, whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. So it's a serious thing for God. He doesn't want us eating blood. He wants the life of the animal to be respected. The fact that this is still something that we're to uphold was also established by the first century church. If you know your New Testament uh, fairly well, you'll remember that as scores of Gentiles were converting to Christianity, the, the question that the early church faced was, how Jewish do these people have to be? How, how much of the law of Moses do these Gentile converts have to uphold? What do they have to do if they're not Jewish by blood, but they are converting to the faith? And so their, their consensus is found in Acts chapter 15, verses 19 and 20, where the Apostle James says this. He says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood." Life is in the blood. God is the creator of all life. It all belongs to Him. All things in the earth are ultimately His. And therefore, to disrespect life is to disrespect the creator of life. Kind of like if you were to to go and key my car. You're not just disrespecting my car. You're disrespecting me, right? We get how that works. Somebody breaks into your home. You take it very personally. A lot of people have to move after their home's been broken into because they just can't live with the fact that they feel so violated. It's the same with God. To disrespect life is to disrespect the creator of life. And so part of this covenant includes respecting animal life, but it also includes respecting human life as well. Now, up until this point in Genesis, to be honest, people haven't done this very well. Remember, Cain murdered his brother Abel in cold blood. Lamech murdered a young man, and he proceeded to write a song about it that he would sing in front of his two wives to brag. 
We learn in Genesis chapter 6 that the earth was filled with corruption and violence, so murder was far too common in the pre-flood world. God gave animals a fear of man, but man needed to have a fear of God. Man needed to know that he would be held accountable for the way that he treats his fellow man. God says that anyone who takes a human life will be held accountable before God. Without this instruction, maybe man would be far too prone to believe that human life was no more valuable than the lives of the animals. So what is it that sets human life apart? What is it that gives humanity a distinction above the animal kingdom? Look at verse 6. It's because God created human beings in the image of God. The image of God was damaged in the fall, but the image of God still exists in every human being nonetheless. It's damaged, but it's not destroyed. And as that relates to abortion, therefore, to murder an innocent child in the womb is actually to attack God's image. To murder somebody out on the street in cold blood is actually to attack God. To harbor bitterness in your heart towards somebody is to hold bitterness in your heart ultimately toward God. The image of God. Imagine that you were to go into a kingdom. You can imagine, like from a fairy tale, you know, a kingdom where the king is ruler over everything. Imagine that you go into a kingdom and all around this kingdom there were statues of the king of the kingdom. How many of you think it would be a good idea to go around destroying the statues of the king and promoting the destruction of those statues of the king? And why would doing that be a bad idea? Why would doing that be so wrong? You know, you could just say, hey, you know, I, I, I'm not a big fan of marble or, or I'm not a big fan of bronze, uh, but, but those, statues, those statues represent more than marble or bronze. They're images of the king and thus they represent the king. You'd be doing more than just destroying any statue. You'd be assaulting and defiling and promoting the destruction of the image of the king. And that's exactly what happens when somebody is murdered, when life is not viewed as sacred, whether that's inside or outside of the womb. Friends, human life is not only precious, it is precious, but it is sacred because all human, bear, all human beings bear the image of God. Does your age determine whether or not you bear the image of God? Nope. Whether you are six years old or 60 years old, you bear it equally. So no, age doesn't determine whether you bear the image of God. Does your mental capacity determine whether or not you bear the image of God? In other words, does Einstein bear more of the image of God than I do? No. We're all, we're all equal. All people are equal in this point, regardless of mental capacity. So no, it doesn't depend on mental capacity. Does your location determine whether you bear the image of God? Nope. No, it doesn't. So what determines whether or not you bear the image of God? Your humanness. The fact that you are a human being determines whether you bear the image of God. If you are a human being, no matter how old, no matter where you are, you bear the image of God. 
We don't become more or less human with age, location, or ability. We are fully human from the moment we are conceived in the womb. And that is a scientific, a a philosophical, and a biblical fact. You are human from the moment of conception. You bear the image of God, therefore, from the moment you are conceived. The Lord Himself creates life, and He alone has the right to take life or to authorize the taking of life. Look again at verse 6. It says that anyone who takes an innocent life should be punished. How? By capital punishment. By capital punishment. And so what we see here is that there is a very distinct difference between murder, shedding of innocent blood, and killing. The person who murders is to be killed. And by the way, this is not for an individual to take into his or her own hands. This is not something that we take into our own hands. Instead, this is one of the roles God has ordained that government should fill this role to protect innocent human life and to punish evildoers. According to Romans chapter 13, government is ordained and established by God for the sake of promoting, protecting, and pursuing human flourishing by passing and enforcing laws that instill fear in those who would seek to prevent human flourishing. So what do you do when the government allows a culture to do what God's Word forbids? What do you do when the government passes a law that allows for limiting or preventing human flourishing? You follow God's Word. You follow God's Word. That is the ultimate standard by which every one of us will be judged. Not the law of the land, the law of God. So you follow God's Word. Just because the government allows something doesn't mean that it's moral. The government, once upon a time, has allowed all kinds of crazy things in our country's history. Does that mean we should have done it? No, of course not. Because they contradicted God's Word. And when the government requires us to take it a step further and do something that God specifically forbids, what do we do then? We defy the government as far as that requirement is concerned. The law guides our ideas of morality to an extent, and the law can incite a fear of punishment within a person, restraining their natural inclination to practice immorality, to commit immoral acts. But while the law can restrain the human heart, it cannot regenerate the human heart. It cannot regenerate the human heart. Only God can do that. And so we understand that government's power really is, is kind of limited. Their ability is kind of limited, but in a sense, but government is better than the alternative. It's better than letting people take whatever they want into their own hands. It's better than chaos or anarchy. Without the fear of repercussion, man is prone only to do what is right in his own eyes. One of the lessons that we got from our study of Judges. Let's continue. Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 to 11. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again 
shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God's covenant with Noah extends to Noah as much as it extended to the first century church, as much as it extends to us today. God has promised that part of this covenant is that he will never destroy the earth again with a flood as he did in Noah's day. And by the way, this is one of the ways that we know that it wasn't just a a local flood that Noah encountered because there have been local floods around the world ever, you know, since Noah. I mean, we have local floods around the world every year someplace, but there's never been a worldwide flood, and that's what God promised he would never do. He promised the flood of Genesis 7 and 8 would never be repeated. It's not that humanity doesn't deserve a full dose of God's wrath today as much as they did in Noah's day, but God has ordained a day of judgment to come that will look very different from the flood And notice, by the way, that man plays no part in this covenant. It's not a contingent or a conditional covenant. That is, it doesn't depend on human obedience. It's not like God's only going to uphold his part if we uphold our part. It's contingent solely upon the grace and the goodness of God and his faithfulness to his own promises. And so what does this mean for us today? It means that we don't have to fear a worldwide flood again, even in an area of the world where sometimes it feels like we have 13 months of rain out of the year and 53 weeks of of rain out of every year. God's not going to flood the earth again the way that he did in Noah's day. And that continues, that promise continues to this very day. Let's wrap things up, verses 12 to 17. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh." When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. As a regular reminder of God's grace toward man. As a sign of the covenant. Covenants always have signs as a regular reminder of his grace, his goodness, his faithfulness to his covenant promises, God has ordained a sign of the covenant that he has established with Noah. And that sign would be the rainbow. Whenever people see a rainbow, we can remember God's promise, and that should cause us to reflect on his incredible grace and his patience and long-suffering toward even the worst of sinners, the worst rebels, you and me. And everybody likes rainbows. We're amazed when we see them. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side, right? Yeah, we, we love rainbows. Everybody loves rainbows. Everybody, when they see a rainbow, they, they recognize the incredible beauty 
and that it's something special of, of a rainbow. They're universally recognized, no matter where you are in the world. They're universally recognized as being absolutely beautiful. And when we understand that they represent a covenant of God's grace, of God's patience toward us, their beauty is magnified. They're a reminder that God is holding back His wrath against sinners. They're a reminder that it's appointed by God for man to die only once and then to face judgment. Consider the direction, by the way, that the bow faces. If you know how archery works, you know that if it were a weapon, it would be shooting upward away from us. And so with that in mind, the rainbow should also remind us of the new covenant, which was established by the shedding of the blood of God's only Son, Jesus Christ, who was murdered by humanity on the cross, where He took the wrath of God upon Himself that His people deserved for their sin. The rainbow reminds us, therefore, that He died. That God incarnate, Jesus Christ, died in order to bring many sons to glory by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You see, Jesus is not only the the greater Adam in the sense that He was perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. He is also the greater Noah in the sense that He saves all of His people from a flood of God's wrath. He has saved His people from the penalty of sin, paying our debt in full with His own blood, His life. He is saving us from the power of sin. And one day He will save us from the presence of sin to the praise of His glorious grace with which God has blessed us in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has saved us, He is saving us, and He will save us. God has designed the world with the idea that all of humanity should flourish and that all of human life is sacred. When it comes to the value of human life, God is the one who makes the call. God is the one who determines the value of life. And He instructs us to value what He values and to love what He loves. And God tells us that all human life is sacred. He desires that one way that every person should honor Him is by honoring His creation and His own image within the human being in our fellow man, which includes unborn children. And friends, we have to... It's great to have this knowledge up here. It's great to have an understanding that life is sacred up here. The question is, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with that knowledge? See, I I want this to be more than just, you know, an, an abstract, theoretical, theological truth that you have in your mind. I want it to be something that, that plays out in your life. It should be something that plays out in your life. Aside from just refraining from murdering somebody who makes you mad. We must stand against abortion and this American culture of death. And that's going to mean different things for different people. Maybe for you it means volunteering at a pro-life pregnancy counseling center. Maybe it means writing letters to your your judges and your lawmakers. It absolutely, unequivocally, certainly means voting for political candidates who are pro-life. 
But perhaps most importantly, friends, pray. Pray, because this is a deeply, deeply spiritual issue. Pray for mothers who don't value the sanctity of the lives of their children in their wombs. Pray that they would come to know God's grace. Pray for our government to pass laws that promote human flourishing. Pray for our government. With with pro-life politicians now apparently dominating government positions, the time has come for the great American Holocaust to end. I would say we're as close to saying it's now or never as we've ever been. It's now or never. With God's hand, with His power, and with our desire to obey the Lord and to value what He values in all of our ways, let us pray that we may see the day when all human life is viewed as sacred in America and beyond. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word, for the way that it instructs us, for the way that it corrects our thinking, for the way that it trains us in righteousness to do every good work, to do, uh, to, to do the work that is pleasing to you, to live a life that is pleasing to you. Father, we do pray for our government. With all the confusion and the, and the chaos that has taken place in the course of the last week, Lord, we especially pray for our government. Um, we know that your word tells us that you have ordained every human government, and so we trust that. We may not like what we have, but ultimately, Lord, Help us to understand that it's ultimately from you, that you have ordained this. And give us peace about it. We pray for our politicians, Lord, for, for, hearts, for the hearts of our politicians to be changed. That they would see the value of all human life. That they would see that all human life is sacred. Father, we ask for your will to be done. And we know that your will is for all of human life to be treated in light of the fact that we all bear your image. So Father, give us grace for the times that we fall short, for the times when we're angry, maybe even for times when we have not valued human life the way that we should. We pray for your grace. We pray for you to grant us repentance that we may, that we may see um, what it would take to live for you, the changes that we would need to make to please you in our lives. So, Father, be glorified, and we pray for the day when the sanctity of life is upheld in our country and beyond. We know that it cannot happen with human effort alone, but that it requires you. And so we ask you, Lord, we ask you to work to that end in our country for the glory of Christ. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. 
If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.